This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Terry's been doing some research about parents that apparently have a little cheating problem. So the Wall Street Journal has this article. It's entitled, Why Do Parents Cheat at Family Board Games? Now, is this, is, I didn't know this was a big thing. Well, so there's this effort to distract your child from the technology. Yeah. Get them away from the phones and the yeah. tablets, computers. And so parents have been purchasing board games. They right. figure we'll teach them some strategy. They can play some games. It's fun. It's, it's be more interactive. Fun, right. There's been a 27% growth in board game sales from 2015. Last year, it hit $2.9 billion, according to the whatever marketing group is focused on board games. Uh, far outpa- outpacing sales growth for all toys. Yeah. Right? So a big focus wow. on And if you go look, there's all kinds of board games. Yeah, oh, yeah. Varieties everywhere. Online, there's all kinds of companies that m- try to make unique games. Uh-huh. And, and for all age groups. But it says, um, here it says, the downside to the old-fashioned family time is the tedium of some of these board games that your five- and six-year-old are at their level to play, right? Right, right. Like a Candyland, yeah. Shoots of Ladders, those Nightmare. kind of games. It says your kid almost gets to the end, and then they draw that card that sends them all the way back down to the start, says Ryan O'Connor of Deerfield, New Hampshire. He's a father of five- and six-year-old daughters. He goes, I've got things to do, like, you know, make them dinner. I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, i got, I mean, people to see. He goes, that's why parents are palming cards, strategically adding pieces when their children aren't looking, and sometimes oh, outright lying. sure. Not without irony, some parents have used technology to make games go faster. Um, data analyst Ethan Markowitz employed statistical analysis to figure out a more efficient way of hastening shoots and ladders. <laughs> Finding the end of that game. I don't like that yeah. game myself. After one too many mind-numbing games, he goes, just like a senior citizen at the bingo parlor, my son is hooked. <laughs> it's like an all-you-can-eat salad bar. He wrote this on his own blog detailing his findings. All we do is spin, move, spin, move until my son performs his victory dance. Or if I'm unlucky enough to actually win the game, he demands a rematch. Right, because he can't stand to lose. No way. So he's a data analyst. So he went and looked at, at shoots and ladders. There are nine ladders and ten shoots, which means a bias towards losing because the shoots send you back down to the right, bottom of the exactly. board, right? So he programmed a simulation of 10,000 two-player games, which showed the dreariness could last as many as 146 turns. His solution was to tape a new ladder to the board between space 47 and 72. Oh, he that, invented a ladder. Yeah, that lowered the low, the longest game to only 110 moves. Wow. Right? Geez. Barry Wise, a father, set out to help preserve uh, the sanity of parents with his own data analysis, suggesting eliminating the longest shoot spanning 87 or space, space 87 to 24. So they're they're taking what? the kids' game and they're trying to figure out how can I do this Little so cheats. the kid doesn't notice. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you just get another game? Okay, so Candyland. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the guy, the 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 one of the two men we just talked about, recommend Candyland with its three point four percent chance of running longer than seventy five moves. Okay, right? how about Legos? He goes. Also, you have to eliminate the rule Legos. of sending pieces backwards in Candyland. Yeah, it's such demoralizing to the parent when you're like. Don't go back to the gummy gummy (laughs) drop road or whatever it's called. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So Jennifer Hogan Jones of Wichita, Kansas. Again, more parents cheating. She argued on board games 
her her she has a blog apparently about board games but she says purposeful losing for your child right she says that children like her daughter need to learn how to handle disappointment the plan is to prepare her for losing in life so in 15 years she won't throw a hissy fit and slam the door when she loses out on something at the yeah, office that's a good point so she's like we're we're we're, 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 we're helping our children kids, yeah board parents are using a wide variety of tactics to bring their family games like Monopoly and Uno to a close as quick as possible, including palming cards, adding pieces when the kids aren't looking. Uh, they talk about um, how, like, the, the five- and six-year-olds, it's kind of set up because as they're holding their cards yeah. in a card game, they tend to look away and get distracted yeah. and tip their cards. And so the parents can look and see what if it's Uno. They can, you can uh, see yeah. the color and you can, like, manipulate it so that you win. <laughs> Just to end it, because you got things to do, and then you you served your time, right? You helped, you played with your kids. But I mean, I, I guess are we missing the point? It seems like we're missing the point. Yes, because the, or maybe what you could do is you could just say we'll go for a time limit. You could just you could set a that. timer, and our we have forty minutes for game time, and that might be a quarter of a shoots and ladder game, right? Because, you know, they run easily into the three hours. Now, what we do is we'll set a time limit, and then we'll, we'll also point out there's you can't get mad, you can't pout, mm-hmm. this is the time we have to play. Because yeah. he's like all, all on board till you hit that time, and he's like, no, we can't stop. You know, he goes, <laughs> no, that's that. You know what else you do is you give your kid a Benadryl, <laughs> then you play the board game. Drug your children. That's another this way is, to do this it. This is the coach's approach here today. Yeah. Um, also, they talk about here that uh, Hasbro created a new Monopoly version that encouraged cheating only in this case to win, right? So that's the whole point is you figure you're going to win. So prompted by the late 2017 survey of customers, Hasbro plans to create a cheater's version. It's out on the market right now, I believe. About half of the respondents admitted to duplicity while playing the real estate game. He goes, we were quite surprised it was that high, that there's that many people half cheating. Half people are cheating. Some marketing executives from Hasbro. The, uh, the new edition will reward players who can, say, move a rival's piece without notice or collect rent of an opponent's property. Yeah. Like when you tell someone, oh, I own that, and they just give you rent, you're like, all right, and you get bonus points for cheating. Take that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A, a cheater's version. It seems like we're maybe missing the point of all of this. It used to be that you had nothing else to do, yeah. so you would play these games, and they were just fun forever because you could talk and relate. Now it's like we play them because we feel like we should, but we're really trying to just get through it so we can get to what we really want to do, But Netflix. As a parent who has been stuck in the never-ending cycle of shoots and ladders yeah. or in Candyland where you get towards the end and you have like five or six spaces left – Right. And so you can truly only move if you get that color. Yeah. You draw that from the card. But then when you draw the mushroom, the, uh, I keep calling it mushrooms, but the uh, gummy bear or gummy drop, yeah. and you have to drop like 40 spaces back, the game never ends. It, it is. And the, it's like, come on, let's just end this. Let's do something fast. That's why tic-tac-toe is good yeah. because there's an end. Uh-huh. It just seems like the games are set up to never end. Connect but. four. Mm-hmm. That's a great game because that goes fast. Right. And you can lose really easily on that game. You just, you, just keep, you just keep, you know, not seeing the big mistakes. Wow. Okay. Parents, what are we doing to our kids for heaven's sakes? Maybe we ought to just find the joy in just being there, set some rules, set some time limits, and then I guess cheat. It's <laughs> just what you got to do sometimes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What a, what a difficult job. Can you imagine being the CEO of your company? 
Now, some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I would kill it, kill it. But it's got to be a really difficult thing to make sure everyone's happy, everyone's got an opinion, everybody, you know, thinks they could lead the company better. And then your job is to actually get it done and meet with the board. And but yeah, but you make so much money. Um, it's interesting uh, when when Jim talked about the fact that the market is is what uh, pays pays these CEOs. Um, then and you're paid, he said, what you're worth. But what what he means by that is, if I can go get millions of listeners to listen to a radio show, then um, and they're doing it because they want to listen to me, then we can afford to pay me more. I'm not like making an argument here for myself, by the way. Um, but the point is, there's a market, and the the funny thing is, some of the most important jobs in the world don't get paid by the market necessarily. <laughs> Um, they don't necessarily – we don't pay our teachers based on the great insights that they gave their students to go allow them to go on and create Apple um, or to create Google. We didn't pay them for that. But we pay our CEOs based on the marketplace, right? And so it's easy to get really offended and and frustrated by what CEOs are making um, and so – and there's no easy way through this. Some of the most important jobs when you think about it aren't even paid. I mean being a parent, you're not paid to be a parent. You're not paid to be uh, – you're not paid anything near what you'd be worth to be uh, that nurse that just is there for you and actually connected and relating to you. Think of anybody in a job or a profession that really has made a difference and uh, they're not probably being paid for all the social and the relational stuff that matters. So um, it's hard. It's hard when we look at a world where some CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars and you know other people that lead huge organizations of incredibly motivated, uplifted people aren't. And I guess in the end, we have to kind of be clear about what, what really matters. And it doesn't mean you just can spread the money everywhere evenly either, right? Because there are market forces at play. But it also doesn't mean that we can't uh, find other ways to respect and hold these people up. There are some things in this world that you can only see with the heart. And uh, one of those is just the goodness of other people. And a lot of times you won't be compensated on earth for that goodness. I guess that's why it's worth believing in a heaven where you might be compensated there. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We have all of this nostalgia for music, and I, I really wonder what it's what it's about. It, it seems like deep, deep down, um, there's we many of us. I mean, maybe of the older generation, we want to get back to that good old fashioned day when you could leave your front door open, uh, you know, have the screen on, maybe put some vinyls on, and 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 get back and and just enjoy listening to some great music. Hmm? Or when you used to – like I used to go hang out at my grandparents' house and every – I think it was Sunday we'd sit around the old uh, wood box television, like real nice wood furniture television set and we would watch Lawrence Welk. And we'd get to see a really nice variety show of dancing and champagne dreams, <laughs> bubbles everywhere. Ah. And I look at my kids and I, th- I, I think our earlier guest made a really excellent point that 
they're um, they they can look at these really incredible masterpieces, but it really is just like they're driving by a billboard. Oh, okay, yeah, I saw that. Yep, 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 saw that. Oh, had that experience. But I guess because we had fewer things going on, these things became more universal. They became more shared kind of collective events. And it might be telling us that there's something powerful in creating culture. And uh, personally, there's a lot I think we can do with our families. There's a lot we can do with our kids to create a feeling of culture like that. Kids want predictability. They want to know that we're going to have a certain, uh, you know, predictable schedule in our lives. We're going to have a family meeting um, once a week. We're going like with us, our kids like to know that we're going to have a family prayer at the end of the day. Something, just something that tells them that everything's okay, we're all fine. And even though they kind of moan when you're like, hey, let's get together and have a family time, they, of course they're going to moan. That's what teenagers do. But they predictably get there, and we then can have some great conversations. We can share some great stuff. So don't think just because, you know, life is moving on, great musicians are passing on, um, that that this world isn't a great place. We just need to take the principles of things we used to do, like we need to sit around and have more talks. We need to have more family circles where we share more insight. We need to ask them to turn the the intervening uh, technology off so that they can actually be present and start experiencing certain things and slowly but surely drip more and more opportunity, more culture, more connection into their lives. Family dinner is a great place to do that as well. So the research bears out that when you're having events like that, you're going to create stronger families, stronger kids, and that's the goal for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This year, Amazon announced that they would be partnering up with different companies to improve health care for their employees and to lower health care costs. And, uh, you know, is, is this something that we should all be paying attention to? I would say yes. Our guest this morning is no stranger to our show or the subject. Here to speak with us about this topic uh, is the former president and CEO of a health insurance company and a professor of health care finance at Case Western Reserve, uh, J.B. Silvers. Thank you so much for being with us today, and welcome back. Great. Thanks, Matt. Good to talk to you. So this this is a weird uh, a weird thing. Amazon, the kind of the... I guess the gold standard of of helping people shop online is now saying that they're going to be entering the the healthcare system really I guess by providing better healthcare for their for their employees, right? But talk about their partnerships, who are they partnering up with and why should we care about any of this? Well, they're partnering partnering with JP Morgan uh, for one and Berkshire Hathaway for another. So wow. Jamie Diamond and and uh and Warren Buffett. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And by the way, big companies too. They, these these organizations between the three of them, there's a there's hundreds of thousands of employees through those organizations. Yes, they're all large companies. Uh, Amazon's gotten enormous now, and the others are not small at all. So, lots and lots of people. So they've got a, a very good base to start with of their own employees. And they're also have to be self-insured. 
So all that that they spend on health care comes right off their bottom line. They've got a strong incentive to do this. Now, you wrote an article in theconversation.com about uh, how this could end up being a major disruptor in the healthcare system because you 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 really have uh, you have Amazon, a major sales organization, J.P. Morgan, uh, understanding finance, Berkshire Hathaway that owns a lot of companies. Um, talk about how this could upset the healthcare system, and is there something bigger going on than them just trying to create something for their own employees? Well, that's the big question. They have not announced what they're going to do, so all everything everything is speculation at this stage, but. I can imagine them sitting around, the three of them sitting around playing bridge. And I think they're all bridge players. Are they really? Yeah. <laughs> saying, Let's, this is awful. You know, we're paying way too much, and it goes up too fast every year. Let's figure out how to do something. We know how to do it. Let's figure out how to make it work. So um, the disruption, it's hard to tell what it would be, but anytime Amazon even looks at another industry, Everybody reads disruption because they've done it successfully in so many places now. But most of that's been on retail. So the the difference here is that most of healthcare, uh, a lot of the the underlying nature of the way of the way employer based policies work, is business to business, not business to to consumer. So what are the, what's their role? Well, it's mainly going to be in using their electronic awareness. Um, getting people to choose more carefully, helping people to shop among the alternatives, the stuff that they do Mm. right now really well. Wow. Um, Berkshire Hathaway is, and J.P. Morgan, for that matter, are both strong in finance and insurance. Yeah. Um, So those those private companies, they know how to deal with those excess risks. What they don't know is how to deal with things together. So um, my guess is there's a bigger story going on Mm. here that's behind it that – Maybe uh, maybe that is the real disruption is changing the paradigm of how we're going to be organizing healthcare. Well, and and maybe for just the rest of us, it might help that you explain in your article. You talk about how most insurance isn't really insurance anyway, and so maybe talk about that. What what is really going on when we are uh, you know getting insurance through our organization and paying our copays? How what are we really paying for really? Well, there are two or three things you're getting when you talk to an insurance company. They, they, the one you obviously know about is, is insurance. You're taking care of risks. But you don't have to have that many people in a pool to get rid of the highs and lows. Uh, 100, 200, 300 employees is plenty for the, the really sick patients, the employees, to, to be balanced out by the over larger mass of well patients. So... You don't need to pay somebody else to bear that risk when you get to be above a fairly small size. So what you're buying from an insurance company, when that card that you carry around your pocket is really shows that they've contracted with a network, um, and then they they know how to pay claims. So they basically are doing transactional kinds of things for you. That's valuable, and it's something the employer doesn't want to do. So you buy those services from somebody else. But those services aren't done very efficiently. Uh, you avoid some state regulation by doing that because you're not an insurance company. States regulate insurance. 
So ERISA is the federal federal law that lets you get out from underneath insurance uh, regulation, and that's valuable. So you avoid some taxes and some other things, uh, and you can shape it to whatever you want. So you can change the benefit structure. You can do other sorts of things, and companies have been reasonably creative in doing that, but they've had to rely on these outside people, the insurance companies. The important thing is these three are not insurance companies. <laughs> That's that makes a difference. Yeah. They're doing something different. But the, I guess they could be doing what uh, Blue Cross – or is Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, that is an insurance company? It's an insurance company. That started out as sort of the prototype insurance company. They're, they're sort of the GMAC or the Chrysler from the ends of the, of the healthcare world. Hospitals, when they, the price of hospital care got to be high enough – said, we need to finance this over a larger body. So they created this pooling mechanism. Hmm. Over the years, that pooling mechanism was very simple. It was anybody who wanted to sign up got the same rate. But that sort of fell apart when commercial insurance companies came in and said, you know, we can we can carve off this one healthier group and treat and charge them less money. And so the, the, the what's called community rating fell apart. So now now they're like everybody else. They sell individual policies, they'll sell group policies, and they mostly do this uh, what's called administrative-only contract. They make contract with employers to provide uh, contracting services with provider networks and to pay the bills. Mm. It's interesting how much of this is just bill management, bill pay and yeah. bill collection versus actual because the the, health, the the hospitals provide the health care, uh, but then you really have these companies that are just pushing papers and and getting the money from the companies to cover the costs. Well, but that's a very valuable resource, yeah. and it's something people don't do. So, you know, a manufacturer doesn't make all the parts; they buy some from outside. They don't. They may not even have their own cleaning service. They may contract with somebody to come in and do that, or the cafeteria. So, contracting out isn't isn't bad. The differential thing is you contract out to people who can do it better than you, who have more expertise or a broader get economies of scale or something else like that. And that's where that's where the industry hasn't done a very good job. You know, we've got some major market imperfections. And as I've thought about this since I made this announcement, I think I think what we're seeing here, and again with some of these strange combinations that have been announced of insurance companies and drug com- drug stores and other things, Humana and, and uh, uh, CVS and the others, is a restructuring around some market imperfections, some, some real inefficiencies hmm. that exist. And um, we don't know how that's going to settle out, and I think this is another one of those. So um, it, they're disruptors. And yet, in the end, they could be – I mean, if, if you start to fix some of the major market imperfections or improve the efficiencies, then it seems like that would be good for everyone. Yeah, and, and this is like a, a, it's like the next step. Uh, the consolidations happen in healthcare care happen for three big reasons so far, I think. One is market power. Uh, hospitals got together and created big systems so they could bargain with the insurance companies better. And that worked. You know, they got – they push back. They're consolidating. Other things are happening. You're getting doctors involved in all because of reactions to risk. Right. We're asking people to take on a lot more risk, and you have to have more, more of a critical mass to do that. The next wave, I think, is around inefficiencies, the, and, and I'd call that transactions cost that are just not very good. 
The following wave, and we're in the middle of this one too, is let's do a better job with actual medical care. You know, yeah. figuring out how to actually do it better. That's not what this is about. Or that's the next one that's going to come. This is about inefficiencies, I think. Interesting. The two that I see these guys dealing with that are sort of below the waterline. One is um, the middlemen that that don't add much value and are taking too much out of the pie. And the two that are sort of obvious behind, largely around these other mergers rather than this one, but I think this one too, are pharmacy benefit management companies, which are beginning to get in the news more, um, and brokers and um, and consultants for, for employers that haven't made it in the news. Both of those two entities, and this is drawing back on my insurance company days, um, don't don't provide as much value as they should for what they charge. Um, the, the drug companies are trying to make the pharmacy benefit management companies into bad guys, uh, and we've always been a little concerned about whether the brokers are really operating in our benefit or in somebody else's benefit, the dueling both sides of the transaction. Those are both inefficiencies. These guys are sitting around, I think, and getting advice from uh, folks and thinking of it themselves and saying, you know, we don't need either one of those. Hmm. We can cut both of those out of this thing, and we can save money that they're taking out of the out of the uh, to the value chain in ways that uh, are going to, you know, add up to 10, 15, 20 percent of the total pie. Wow. That's real money. Well, JB, we appreciate you. This is great insight, I think, for all of us to to better understand what's going on and the, the next front on the healthcare line. It looks like inefficiencies and in transaction costs. Eventually, we'll get to better medical care, <laughs> which is hopeful, right? But to Amazon, man, they're making a move. JB Silvers, thank you again. Again, remember, JB is a is a past president of a health insurance company and CEO, and also a professor currently of healthcare finance at Case Western Reserve University. Great uh, insight, and obviously his dog. He's working his dog. He, his dog probably wants to get out for his walk. We will uh, continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the program to give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me and they're like, oh, is my... Is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know, interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Marriage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always 
you know, it's it's not always that we we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there. And, and if somebody wants to get married, there's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You, you, you got to have, you got to want four things while you're dating to create, I think, some movement. The first one is you got to be, you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously till I'm through my first year of law school. Or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship. And the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us uh, and especially And we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission, and they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine, but you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know, and you date the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from – an age group and a group of people that you know, you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like, uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29, you'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage. But the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between 22 and 25. And again, if you're planning on if you're 27 by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be, you know, out of the market, out of the game. So there's something going on obviously because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they 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 don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, "Do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get just wait. Wait." Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. You did not know this guy. 
So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro marriage. You actually you, you don't want to marry a, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't – is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, And so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, Couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to – to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, The other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. 
And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everybody needs to belong. They need to feel like they belong. And so uh, we've, we're going to revisit an interview we did with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an assistant uh, associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. Dr. Willoughby, folk research, uh, and all of his work focuses on young adult dating and relationship patterns. And we began the interview by talking about the need to belong and what that actually means. When we talk about a need to belong, we're talking about almost this this need to have other people care about us and, and be looking out for our well-being. Yeah. We, we, we have this desire to have other people want to want to to know what's up with us and want to know what what we need in our life on a day to day basis. Yeah. And, and so really, it's it's is it something different than having needing a friend? It, it can be a friend. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of goes based on which part of our life. We're at. If right. you look at younger kids, particularly adolescents, that need to belong in social circles with peers is huge, mm-hmm. right? That's where we get a lot of yeah. it. We, we don't want our parents to give us that anymore. Right. We That's want it from our friends. Um, as we get later in life and adulthood, it, it oftentimes is romantic relationships, and whether it, it's marriage or, or other relationships in our life. So it starts too, though, as a kid, as a as a child. I want to belong to my parents. I want right. my parents to. So they provide that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this gets into that whole this gets into the attachment issues yes. and the need to 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 know you're safe, you mm-hmm. belong to somebody that you're safe there to grow and develop. Right. I'm safe. Someone will take care of me. Mm-hmm. Right? Cuz even though we we all innately want to take care of ourselves, we have that survival instinct. There yeah. is also this this need to want other people to look out for me too, that someone else will be there for me. Someone else will have my back. What happens when we don't feel like we have that? Mental health, depression. Yeah. Anxiety. Um, in fact, a, a lot of those kind of very basic mental health issues that a lot of people have are, are based in loneliness. That's usually how it gets manifested, mm. as people describe. I'm just lonely. 
mm. all the time. I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like anyone understands me. Um, but it's usually based in those attachment issues and in, in that, that desire to belong to, with other people. How do you, how do you fix that? I mean, a lot of that is, that's, that, there is mental health one-on-one really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause if somebody has this, you might be more detached. You might be less likely to find a healthy relationship. Right. Yeah. You pull away too easy. Yeah. Well, it, it depends because this can range. I mean, yeah. you can go all the way to someone that's really struggling with this that might need professional help and a therapist to help them work through some of those issues. Um, but really, the other thing this gets into is is all this research we have on the power and benefit of long-term marriages. Hmm. We know that people that are married are healthier physically and mentally. And, and a lot of that is you've got someone there for you that's got your back you've got that sense of belonging at least if it's a healthy relationship um and that's that's why marriage is so powerful for so many people Mm. i mean it really is when you think about but they also get boring i guess too because you would think that once you're married you finally have this one person that you know has your back you can always go to them but then maybe we fade we fade in that relationship yeah. What happens there? A little bit. It, it, it changes yeah. over time. But we, the other thing we know about marriages that last for several decades is they become much more based on commitment. There's that safety. There's I, I know that person, even if it's, again, a little boring maybe. Yeah. I know that person's there for me. They understand me more. And th- this is actually very powerful for men in particular. Really? Uh, again, back to that research about the benefits of marriage. For men, that's particularly true. And one of the interesting things we see when people get married a lot of women tend to keep their social circles. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of men drop them. Yeah, you know, I, I got keep all I for, need. <laughs> yeah, I've, and they put a lot of their emotional investment in their wives, a lot of their social needs into their wives. That's the person that I can come talk to. That's the person I can come confide in about my day, about my struggles, You know, even though we're men. So we only do that a little bit, but yeah. that's that person I can focus on. And interestingly, it seems like then, so the marriage relationship is distinct from just any even cohabitating, dating relationship, romantic relationship, mm-hmm. because because we have a commitment? What's the difference? Yeah, commitment is, is huge. One of my uh, colleagues out at the University of Denver, Scott Stanley, has, oh, has written him. a lot about yeah, he's this. been on the show a couple of times. Yeah, and, and he, he talks about the power of that commitment to someone, that the knowing that I, if I mess up, you're kind of stuck with me. And it sounds kind of, you know, like, well, I don't want you to be stuck <laughs> yeah, with me. Deal but, with it. <laughs> yeah, but there is something about knowing that in my uh-huh. head, that we are committed to each other. We've made those vows um, to each other. And so I can rely on you. That's huge. Yeah. So, so if we're in a relationship and let's say we're married and we, we don't necessarily feel, we feel like this need, this, this attachment, this need to belong is slipping. Mm-hmm. What do we do? What do we, is it fixable? It is. Yeah, it's definitely fixable. And this is actually, again, a lot of the basic relation advice you hear out there connects back to this, things like date nights Mm -hmm. and things like just talk, spending time talking and reconnecting with each other um, can redevelop that, that bond, that sense that we, we know each other, we understand each other's lives, um, that, that you're the person I come and talk to about my fears and my anxieties. And so, so being open with Mm -hmm. those things too. That's huge. And and it it is. So if you're not seeing that connectedness, then you probably need to get serious about it. Yeah. And, and back to the date night ideas. I think some people get this idea of, well, I need to date my spouse. And so that means we need to go have fun and go to a movie and go right. to dinner. And Keep it exciting. Yeah, it's, it's not really about what you're doing. It's about what you're doing while you're on that date. Are we getting away from the kids? Are we getting away from everything and talking about our lives, about what's going on? And, 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 and again, having that time to connect with yeah. each other. I mean, it's almost like it's 
we always think we get bored with our spouses, mm-hmm. but it's really more we just feel kind of disconnected. Right. And the so the, everything you're saying about those date nights, those are kind of predictable. Let's just go talk, mm-hmm. and but let's let's actually talk and be vulnerable. Right. And the being talking and vulnerable actually will create more connectivity than having a really fun date. Oh yeah. You know, water skiing. Yeah, because you, you can go do something really fun with your kids or uh-huh. with a coworker or with yeah. someone else. It's it's those deeper conversations we can have with our spouse that makes the relationship unique. This is different than when I do those type of things with everyone everyone else. And that was Dr. Brian Willoughby, again, an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand why and how uh, how we handle this need to belong. Think about it just as, as a fellow human – I, everybody needs to know that they're safe, they're secure in life and in their uh, group, in their family. And imagine the impact that that could have the day that uh, y- you don't feel that. Boy, what 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 um, what am I supposed to think when I know I don't belong in a family? Or I don't feel I belong. I don't feel like I be- belong in a community, in a group, in a neighborhood, at my school. I don't belong. Uh, you can see how people get desperate, and then those desperate uh, moments create some pretty uh, desperate uh, lives. So anyway, interesting stuff. Boy, by the way, speaking about lonely, listen to this. A woman gets a $10,000 voucher after being bumped off a United Airline flight. A Washington, D.C. woman says she received a $10,000 travel voucher from United Airlines after she was urged to give up her seat on an overbooked flight. And if you haven't been flying lately, this is becoming kind of the norm uh, of the airlines. They they pack it deep and sell it cheap, and then they pay ten grand, I guess, to get you to get off the plane. Allison Priest uh, adds, United offered her a voucher following complications with her seat on a recent flight from D.C. to Austin. I never asked for a larger amount. The agent just escalated quickly. She told the Washington Post Friday, Price said that she initially was offered $2,000 voucher and the next for the next available seat on another flight and added that the airline employee eventually just told her she could be offered up to a $10,000 voucher for her troubles with and no firm plans but I'm thinking I'm going to Hawaii price said so one thing you can do is you you can hold out you can be sure it's a little lonely cuz you're the one that just has to walk off the plane or not get on the plane as all your friends and others are leaving but man if you've got uh, some free time and a little bit of a and maybe some open you know life Go for ten grand on United Airlines. By the way, that may not be the number they want out there. They'd probably rather just give you a two hundred dollar voucher, and you know, a little coupon to Cinnabon. That would be nice. I mean, who wouldn't take that? Although I have to say, like United is, they've they've gotten a little beating on their reputation yeah, lately. Had, this is they've had a hard couple of years. A ten thousand dollar voucher sounds like probably one of the best PR now, things they could do right now. Everyone out there is going to be asking for the ten thousand dollar voucher. Sorry, best I can do is Cinnabon coupon. Um, that's why we do the show, to give you these great little bits of advice. So now next time you're asked to, to bump, hey, be willing to bump. Maybe it might even be worth you planning a little travel bump into your plans. Take one extra day, call it the bump day, and you and your spouse would be willing to give up two seats and pick up five grand $5,000 voucher. Then you really could travel anywhere, maybe, you know, anywhere. If you got to $10,000 one, you could pretty much go anywhere in the world, couldn't you, for ten grand? 
Anyway, doing what we can to help you make your life easier, one flight at a time, one $10,000 voucher at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. McKenna Baus joins us uh, to, again, tweak our minds a bit. Hey. How are you? Doing well. Good to have you. Yeah, it's our, nice to Our top-notch producer and social media guru. Oh, well. I think you do me more credit than I deserve. No, excellent to have you. Uh, good to have you here. Talk about you were going to bring up this weird idea about languages dying. Yeah. So a lot of times when we think of dead languages, we think of kids Latin. sitting in class <laughs> studying Latin. I love that was my favorite subject. You are one of the rare few. I'm fluent in a dead language. Well, there you go. And the thing is now more and more people um, are going to be able to say that as well. Right. Right now, um, there's predictions by scientists that 90% of all of the world's languages will have died out by the end of this century alone. 90%? 90%. What? Yeah. We're That's looking crazy. at mass extinction when it comes to language right Why? Now. Just because we're all moving toward a unified one or two or five languages? Yeah. So right now, there's approximately 7,000 languages wow. that we're aware of. On Earth, and about the top 100 are the only ones that are really widely spoken. And even within that, you have more and more that are becoming less and less used, mm. that are dying off as we sort of center around what are called these metropolitan languages, the big names, yeah. you know, that we all are familiar with, like English, English maybe Spanish, Spanish, Mandarin Chinese. Yeah. Although kids aren't even speaking English anymore. They're just sending emojis over their phones. Yeah. Well, emojish is another language. Oh, definitely. So that is sad because you lose your language, mm-hmm. you lose your culture. Yeah. And so that's one of the big concerns that they have is that these languages are dying out faster than we can record them. Oh, no. And so you're losing the record of cultures entirely. You're losing all of the knowledge that those cultures had, a lot of it in terms of the plants and animals and their environment of where it's from. And so you lose medical information that we could use that has to be rediscovered. You're losing, um, I mean, just people's ability to communicate one with each other, to understand how these people thought. And the thing is, is you have a lot of people now who are on Earth and they – are the only ones who can speak their mother language now. And so they can't even talk to anybody yeah. in the language that they grew up with. And I mean, I guess you could archive your language, but then it would still only be known by one professor at some yeah, it's, university. It's still The thing is, though, is that's just such an undertaking Sad. that a lot of these people, they're out in more remote areas and they're harder to reach. Well, and is, I guess is that just because the markets demand that you speak one of these top 10 languages? Um, that's you know part of it. One of the most interesting reasons that these are dying out is actually because of climate change. Really? Yeah. Um, a lot of these you know languages that are dying out are in these uh, ecologically threatened areas, and as seawater levels rise, 
they ha- these people have to move inland. They integrate more with mm. other communities, and all of a sudden their language starts dying out. Mm. And so you have the environment changing, changing our language. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show and the culture. Yep. And taking away the sad thing is taking away concepts that we don't even have. I I speak Spanish, and there's certain ways to talk about love and boyfriend and girlfriend that are so different in Spanish than they are in English. There's, we have a word like love, mm-hmm. but you can love a burrito and you can love your wife. It's not the and same we don't thing. differentiate. <laughs> you know, isn't it sad? We don't even know what we're losing. Yeah, and that's you know, one of the things is it's going to be gone before we realize that unless we really start fighting to save these languages in any way that we can. But now we but we've got other we've got other words now that are so wonderful like square up. I don't even know if I know what that That just means. means get ready to fight me. Oh, okay. My son says it to me every morning, square up dad. I'm like you want me to punch you. But he just it's just I don't know what it is. It's just being sounded Irish. Square up, man. You want me to punch you? Do you want me to punch you in the face? Yeah, no. That's sad. Mm-hmm. So any way to fix this? Change global warming, apparently. Change global warming um, and really just encouraging communities um, to speak their indigenous languages as well. A lot of the effects that we're seeing now are also caused by you know, decades and centuries before this yeah. of oppression of um, indigenous people trying to force assimilation of mm-hmm. different cultures. Uh, that's a big problem that is being faced with the um, First Nations people in Canada. Uh, for years, right. they had forced education things. That they were these kids weren't allowed to speak their indigenous languages, and now nobody can. Yeah, and we are, and our intolerance to everybody has to speak English. But now we have refugees coming, immigrants coming in, and it might we might lose a lot if we don't allow them to at least maintain their languages. Yeah, we definitely we just need to do everything we can to celebrate linguistic diversity. Man, McKenna, great insight. Thanks for uh, that. I mean, really, folks, did you even think of that? powerful what we lose when we i mean seven thousand languages we could lose 90 percent of them crazy you're listening to the best of the matt townsend show boy what would the world be like if we could all respect the human dignity in our fellow man what would it be like if i could actually see the fact that uh, you're more than a male or a female you're more than a doctor or you know a teacher what if I could see beyond that, beyond the color, beyond what would it, what would happen to us? How would I treat you differently if I actually could see that deeper, more powerful person in you? C.S. Lewis had a great uh, th- uh, thought uh, that I'll kind of paraphrase. I don't. I probably won't do it justice, but if we could just see the deity, the goodness inside of the person we sit next to. Yeah, he he inferred that we'd we'd have a, a desire to fall on our knees to worship them, if we could actually get to the goodness that is inside of every one of us, and then um, we, you know we hear in our political talk, we hear in just all of the legal issues that are going on around the world and the country, we hear in in uh, you know every argument about um, class issues, class warfare, cultural issues. Diversity issues, male-female issues, just a lack of appreciation and of the seeing the divine. And so how are you doing with that? 
as you're driving to work, as you're taking care of your family, is there something you can do today, uniquely you, that might help you and me, I'll do it for myself, pick up a game, pick up our game when it comes to respecting the human dignity of others? And is there also a way that we could maybe turn down giving too much power, too much uh, homage and respect to somebody simply because they have material things or they have a, a really powerful talent that is so apparent and obvious? Is there a way that we could start to pay more attention to the things that we don't pay attention to? One of my favorite quotes uh, is says, it's not the bars that hold the tiger in. It's the space between the bars that hold the tiger in. It's not the notes that makes the music. It's the space between the notes that makes the music. So the same thing is true when we think about uh, trying to show respect to one another. We have ma- we have material things. That would be the bars. And then we have the spiritual things, the, the space between the bars. We have the notes, the material things, and we have the space between the notes. And really, it's it's the spiritual human dignity that we all need to remember. And again, we don't have to dichotomize everything. So it's not animals or humans, but it's both, right? You can respect and love your animals, and you can respect and love the dignity of a human. So what would happen if if we could change? And what's the one thing you could do today to become that change? Just think about it. But uh, where could you show more dignity? Could you show it more as a as a parent to protect the dignity of your child? How about to protect the dignity of your parents, your seniors that you might be taking care of? How about to protect the dignity of the people in your community? Think it over, and let's see if we can't elevate our lives by just simply focusing a little bit more on the things we don't necessarily see. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We've had a couple uh, discussions about poverty. We talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress. And stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems, and, and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the LDS Church, that, um, you know, is— the the sponsor really in the end of this show because of it, Brigham Young University is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world and they have they they have your church leader will come your religious leader will come and meet with you assess and find out why you are struggling in poverty the church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We have um, we, we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight or flight brain, we we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning 
get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and and start giving them. And we always think, well, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay. But again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma, but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that'll help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs, we've got to work on on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you are you involved in helping the people around you to get uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls, they just don't, they're just lazy. If you believe that, you don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking. Because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor, that's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or, or end um, some of these, these problems. We've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion, and it's still beating us down. Just a little advice from uh, Dr. Matt. Our goal, again, is help us all live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, folks. You know, employee engagement is a major concern for HR leaders around the country. Year after year, these managers and researchers discuss Gallup's shocking statistic that 7 out of 10 U.S. employees report feeling unengaged or disengaged uh, in their workplace. And uh, figuring out how to increase employee engagement has been a burning question for companies and consultants across the board. Here to talk with us today a little bit more about the study and how we can decrease our risk of burnout is Dr. Julia Moeller, who is an assistant professor for educational psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany. Julia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Talk about uh, we've we've brought up this idea of engagement quite a bit on the show, um, and first of all, I guess it is is it is are, are the numbers from Gallup accurate? Is it really seven out of ten people are are disengaged or less engaged in their workplace? Well, I suppose that depends on how you define engagement, how you measure it. Um, 
I wouldn't say it's incorrect, but I would also like to point out that we found different numbers in our study. Um, so engagement, since it is a buzzword and many researchers are studying to investigate it, there are different definitions going on mm. or going around. Okay, so, so talk to talk to us about your yeah. How do you different ways? How do you define it? Well, we follow much of we follow a quite known engagement definition by um, Arnold Bakker, who is an, a, a professor in the Netherlands, who is very known in the field of engagement research. And we define engagement as a broad umbrella term that basically summarizes everything that you would find important about motivation in the workplace. And so it's, an, it's a multifaceted construct that um, includes physical aspects, cognitive aspects, and emotional aspects. And to, to sum it up in one sentence, it's like a positive, fulfilling, work-related state of mind that is characterized by vigor, by dedication, and by absorption. Hmm. So they're motivated and, uh, in those variety of areas, physical, emotional, mental, um, uh, is, is, a pretty, is a pretty good definition of it. What are you learning about engagement? Um, because it seems like being motivated and and feeling a vigor toward our work and an excitement toward our work, it seems like a positive thing. Um, but uh, are there some risks to engagement? Yes, both. On one hand, engagement is a positive state of mind. It's defined as a positive state of mind. And it's a con- a combination of everything about motivation that is supposed to be beneficial for work. And um, several studies have shown that engagement is beneficial for desired outcomes, such as work performance and um, business unit performance, but also safe working behavior and client satisfaction. So usually engagement is seen as a very desirable um, state of mind in employees which is why so many people worry about how to boost engagement in employees. But on the other hand, um, there might be such a thing as too much engagement. Hmm. Um, or as Professor Arnold Bakker put it, high engagement is a peak and every peak might need also a valley or a low in order to be in balance. And what I mean is we have seen that in some employees, um, there are very high levels of engagement. They are totally fired up. They are very motivated to perform at their best. But at the same time, they do so at a certain cost. And the longer they are engaged and the more engaged they are, they might also develop uh, symptoms of stress and even symptoms of burnout. But that doesn't occur in all of the employees. So that goes back to your question, how, how many people are engaged. Um, so we found that 41% of all employees in our sample were positively engaged, only engaged without any stress. But also 18.8%, so almost one out of five, had high levels of engagement and high levels of stress and burnout. And those are the people who we worry about because they have high engagement, but we wonder if it's necessarily a positive thing. Interesting. So one out of five uh, people are have high engagement and uh, have burnout. Yes, and or symptoms of burnout. Yeah, and so 
Um, that's interesting. Is it is it more? Are these? Is it just that they're doing more work and that's what's burning them out, or is it just that they have like personalities that burn out? Well, we didn't look into personality, um, but usually a lot of the research on, on engagement focuses on resources and demands that people encounter at their workplace, and I think that's interesting because this is uh, what managers might have an influence on. So usually we read that um, high resources that people get at their work in order to perform at their best are positively related to engagement. So the more resources people get or uh, encounter, the more engaged they tend to be. Um, Then on the other hand, there are demands which usually are supposed to relate to burnout or stress. but since we found that there is this group of people who have high engagement and high stress and burnout levels, we also looked at the demands and resources they encounter. And we found that these employees that we call engaged, exhausted, were also quite likely to encounter high demands and high resources in a combination at their work. Hmm. Is, it, um, is this job specific? Like I look at my job as when i'm on the air i have i have a lot of um demand it feels like i mean i feel a lot of stress because you've got to constantly be on and be doing your job um but then so my job feels like that but then i don't have much to do after my show except prepare for the next show but i and i can imagine a surgeon would have uh you know if if they were in high demand and even if they had a lot of resources it would it would feel good. They'd be engaged, except over time it could eventually just burn them out. That sounds plausible. So are you saying that the fact that you get some downtime after your work yeah. helps you dealing with the higher does, demand? Yeah, does the job – I mean, is this job specific? Uh, it seems like surgeons would have a higher incident of burnout anyway just because of uh, their demand and what they're doing versus somebody that's – maybe um, doing another job that isn't life or death or another job that isn't as intense. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that um, the levels of burnout and stress tend to differ between industries and jobs. So, for instance, teachers and people working in certain um, service jobs and, for instance, hospitals and nurses, they are more likely than others to perceive or experience symptoms of burnout. Um, I can't tell you whether there are differences between people in terms of being at the same time engaged, exhausted. But I, w- I w- would assume so. And I think you have raised an important question, which is um, maybe it's not the high demands. Maybe it's really a question whether or not you can get a balance and a recovery after encountering those demands that makes a difference between being positively engaged and being engaged with increasing levels of stress and burnout. Yeah. I mean, it's and I guess, too, it's it's so fickle because it also has to do with how you handle stress, how you process, how you take your downtime. Um, And so what what are you learning that managers can do, Julia? What what how can managers improve um, the engagement, but also uh, not overdrive the burnout? That is a very interesting question, and we are just at the beginning of understanding that. I think our uh, findings 
relating to the demand and resources give a good hint um, because I think it's really key to understand that the higher the demand, the higher is the likelihood of an employee to get stressed and eventually also experience exhaustion and other symptoms of burnout, no matter how engaged and passionate they are about their work. And I think that's often overlooked. We often think um, we don't have to worry about people who are highly engaged and who people who say about people who say they love their job. And often they have so many positive emotions that they don't even worry about their, themselves. Um, but the higher the demands and the higher, for instance, the workload or the closer a deadline, the more work you put into your uh, the more time you put into your work, the m- the more you also need some downtime, some recovery, um, some sleep, and maybe even some time with your family and friends to make up for all the time that you're absent at work, you know. So I think it's really this balance, and I think it would often help if managers kept in mind how high the demands are currently at their workplaces for their employees, and if they try to make up for their demands in, uh, in terms of increasing the resources. Um, because we usually think about demand and resources as something that should be in balance. And if the demands are really high because there's a deadline coming up and everyone is working like crazy, then it might be a good idea to make sure that at least they get something to eat over lunch and don't have to, you know, run out and run back or even stop eating over work. But um, having a manager who has these demands in mind and tries to meet them with increasing resources, I think, would help a lot. But it's almost like we don't sometimes work that way in our organizations because, you know, we have other systems that are going on where, you know, people are only allowed so much vacation time. People are only allowed, you know, you've got to be here nine to five, your schedule's set. And but it may not always flow with, you know, the way your industry works. Yes, that's right. There are also lots of jobs which require people to just put in extra work or you work on evenings, you work um, on the weekends, like researchers often work a lot and don't really necessarily monitor the time right. they put in. Um, but they also get a lot of freedom in deciding where to work and when to work so that they can at least pu- get the workload in agreement with other aspects of their life. And yeah. I think that's that's also an upcoming debate. I have seen recently lots of um, newspaper articles talking about home office and whether or not people should at all be requested to come to work in an office if the work doesn't require it because people are starting to um, figure out that they have more resources at at home and um, don't lose so much time on the way of getting to work. So there are different new strategies being discussed that people hope would help them getting more resources or making up for the demands that they encounter at work. And I think that's an interesting development. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Julia Muller, thank you so much for this insight. It really, I think it it opens a lot of uh, questions, I think, for all of us of how we manage our own demands, how we look at our own resources 
and uh, and how we make it through this and stay engaged, but not to the point of burnout. Remember, Dr. Julia Muller is an assistant professor for educational psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany, and uh, she's um, doing what she can to make our lives a little bit easier, I think, by understanding burnout. We'll continue this uh, lesson and, and uh, do a little coaching straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. You know, when you think of burnout, um, you know, sometimes you think of all these people that that uh, aren't motivated. They don't have a purpose in life. They, But when you listen to uh, Julia's numbers about the fact that burnout comes to the people that really tend to be most engaged, um, and then they, they don't... They don't take time for themselves. And I think a lot of us are – we're so driven. We so live in this world where we need to get the right grades. We need to – everything's pressure and we want to be the best. And and we, we even feel compelled to be the best because, you know, God would want it that way. He'd want us to be our best self. But God doesn't want you to be burnt out. <laughs> He doesn't want you to do more than you can do, does he? Is that how this works? Is no, no, you got to no, sorry. Actually, he wants you just to be just a big mushy ball of nothing. That's how God works. Um God wants you to be in tune and in a connection with him. So to me, the what uh what maybe we need to figure out with each of our lives is how do we do some of this? For example, how do I stay uh, focused and connected to my purpose in life while simultaneously um, growing and, and knowing who I am and um, stretching myself and, and pushing myself harder to do more and to be more. How do I do all of that and not get burnt out? It, uh, it's, I, I guess the key to some of this is going to be, um, I guess, at some point in our lives, Knowing what matters to us, knowing what our yeses are, knowing what we need to do, what we need to work on, what we need to be. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of work. Uh, interesting, some research on happiness shows that 48% of Americans consider themselves happy, right? And um, which doesn't seem that, I mean, I guess that's high, but 33% of Americans say they're very happy with their jobs. By the way, the happiest careers happen to be clergy, firefighters, and reservation agents, which to me is what? But when you look at clergy and firefighters and I guess reservation agents, they're outwardly focused. They're serving others. They're helping people uh, take care of and, and do things. They're 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 outwardly focused. They probably also um, I know, for example, with firefighters. They spend only about 1% or 2% of their time actually fighting a fire. The other 98% of their time, they are probably preparing, working, exercising, anticipating, rejuvenating, getting healthy, you know, drilling, practicing, doing things like that. So I think each and every one of us could probably find a way to 
take better care of our lives if we maybe thought a little bit more like a clergy member who's always looking to the bigger picture of God, or a firefighter who's always trying to prepare so that they can handle the fire. Some of us, though, don't have time to prepare for the fires because we're too busy fighting fires. And um, if you keep fighting the fires and never prepare for the fires, then eventually you'd eventually have, I'm betting, a lot of fires to handle, right? Maybe 60% of your time would actually be in firefighting instead of fire prevention. So look at your own balance in your own life. What percentage of your day is actually spent in true recreation, where you actually are recreating yourself, your sense of, uh, you know, your sense of health, your sleep, by the way, your restfulness, your mindfulness, your meditation. Do we have time for any of this? You know, some of us have got to work. And then we work. And again, you're going to pay one way or another here. You're going to eventually have to pay. It's sad, but it's uh, it's it's going to have to happen. There's a great um, definition by Dr. Sean Acor, who wrote the book on happiness, um, the happiness advantage. He, the 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 definition of happiness is the most accurate term for happiness is one that Aristotle used. It's eudaimonia which translates not directly to happiness, but to human flourishing. So what if we blew up the idea that we as humans need to go for happiness, but instead we chose to just go for flourishing? Do you feel like at work you're flourishing? Or are you dying? Are you just, you know, imploding? And what can you do in your workplace to feel a more of a sense of flourishing. Probably would have to involve four or five areas at least. Physically, what can you do to stay on top of your game physically? Socially, how are your relationships at work? Emotionally, how do you feel about yourself in the work you're doing, your vision, your purpose, your passion? How do you feel about that? Uh, financially, is it cutting it for you? Is it is it paying off? Um, and... Um, Professionally, are you being stretched? Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you being able to take this uh, this job to another level and be able to, to truly be who you need to be? So that's just simply asking yourself physically, socially, emotionally, financially, um, and kind of I call it spiritually, are you connected to what you're doing in a way that it actually creates flourishing for yourself? And if it doesn't, hey, that's normal. That's normal, right? But the the dilemma is at some point normal might lead to burnout. Only 40 in her research only 40%, 41% of the people she studied are engaged. Uh according to the Gallup organization, it's uh only 30% of the people that the Gallup organization studied are engaged. But of those that are engaged, she found that 20% of those are engaged to the point of burnout. So you can have too much of a good thing, right? And uh, we we probably need to watch out for that. Some other things I've realized and learned just in my own life um, is, is to make sure that I actually am using the strengths that I bring to the table. Um, there's certain things I don't bring to my job that it's not me, it's not my gift, it's not my strength. And if I spend all day doing my job and then trying to get better at the things I'm not good at, 
um, instead of being able to magnify the top four or five, six things that I do bring to the game, then we might actually find ourselves burning out even faster. Instead of using a strength that would rejuvenate us and actually feel us, make us feel passionate about what we do, we, a lot of us in our jobs might be spending a lot of time making up for our, our errors, making up for the things we're not as good at. And I wonder if that just might be the selection of our job. Maybe we aren't in the right job if we have to spend so much time getting so much better at it that you know we are almost running against the grain. I would love to see some research done on how people choose their jobs and if that impacts whether they are happy about it, whether they are feeling burnout. When I'm doing what I am uniquely qualified and gifted, not professionally skilled at because I've gone to school to learn it, but things that I am uniquely gifted at, I feel more passion than when I have to do things that I am not kind of inherently gifted at doing. And by the way, the same I found is true in my own parenting. It doesn't mean I won't need to learn stuff. I totally will. But there's also certain times in my parenting where I am actually using my God-given gifts, my God-given talents, and I bring those talents to that parenting moment, and it, it creates a complete new dynamic in my world with my children, right? I might not be the greatest at making dinner, so I'll go learn how to cook, but I will make dinner fun for everyone, okay? So we'll have a fun dinner because that's kind of my unique gift, and I guess I could improve my cooking, but I could spend hours and hours improving how I cook, and it won't necessarily make me that much happier. Or I could also spend hours and hours at making it more fun and dynamic and exciting and interesting, and that actually does make it seem like less work. So one of the rules I guess I'd give all of us is let's figure out what our unique strengths are and our gifts are. I've talked about it on the show many times. There's a wonderful website. Go to AuthenticHappiness.org which is a, a it's Penn State University, and you can go on their website, AuthenticHappiness.org, take a test called the VIA test. It's the Character Strengths Test, and it will help you identify from number one to number 24 what your top 24 character strengths are. And hands down, I'm happiest when I'm living my top strengths, period. And by the way, my weakness, my weakest areas... I actually just use my strengths to mitigate those other areas that I'm not so good at. I use my creativity, my humor, my fun, my spirituality. I use my social intelligence as ways to mitigate the fact that uh, I don't have other strengths. And the research hands down shows that's what drives happiness. 93% of people that are happiest are happiest when they use their strengths 10 hours a week. And only one in four adults actually do so. So it's worth looking into, folks. It's worth checking out. So go to AuthenticHappiness.org to to get into that. Uh, Anyway, fun stuff. Interesting. We're all here to learn, doing what we can to make life a little bit better by our strengths and uh, by our engagement. This is The Matt Townsend Show. So we all need to belong, right? We want to feel like we're connected and to the world and that we belong and we are we 
are loved, right, by other people. And so Dr. Brian Willoughby, who is a regular on the show and associate professor here at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, he was on the show a while ago talking about this need to belong. And we wanted to revisit it to give us all some more tools and how to manage our need to belong and our our marriages and the love we have with our significant other. So I asked him if it's normal to be in love with a person but not to like them in the moment. It's something when I when I teach my marriage classes, I've got a couple of mottos that I drill into their brains from the first day yeah. onward. And this is one of them. It's just because I love you forever doesn't mean I'm going to like you every day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's normal. That is. I can love yeah. you forever and be committed to being yeah. in, but I may not like you right now. Right. And it, it captures the day-to-day reality of real relationships that they're even in the best most romantic storybook relationships, there are days where you're going to look at your spouse and say, I don't like you. You right drive now. me crazy. You drive me crazy. And it's going to go the other way too. Yeah. Um, but we know there's there's lots of great research out there now um, that shows that relationships fluctuate up and down and, and every relationship has downs and then they tend to get better and then they stay pretty average for a while mm-hmm. and then you'll have a couple weeks that are awesome and that's that's just the reality of relationships. So but what if if every human has a basic need to belong mm-hmm. then how do they handle the idea that it's going to fluctuate and go up and down? Mm-hmm. Unless, like you said earlier, that they know you're committed. So somehow you have to emphasize you're committed. Right. And yeah, get there, them to believe that. Yeah. There, there's got to be things you do in your relationship that remind you of that commitment. You know, we have basic things like anniversaries mm-hmm. and, and, and other things like that. But it's got to be more regular. There, there's got to be little moments on a regular basis, you know, whether it's little words like I love you or other things that just show that person I'm committed to you and just to you. And daily, regularly. Yeah, regularly. Because if they don't see the commitment, then when times get tough, they start to drift like, uh. Right, exactly. And then that creates anxiety and then maybe a fight or flight moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then then eventually over time, if if we don't have that, the negative stuff continues to brew and build. Mm -hmm. and, And then I start having doubts. Yeah. Are you actually there for me? And then we actually just look for evidence that proves you're not. Right. Because you, mm-hmm. you look, you're going with your family here. Yep. And it becomes that, this. that cycle, that self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, the, the fancy word we use for that is negative sentiment override. That's uh, our ooh. academic term, N- right? Neg- negative negative sentiment oh, oh, override. But basically what that means is that over time, if we have all these negative things that happen, I start interpreting everything that you do yeah. as a negative. And in fact, just in my class last week, we were talking about this. And I give the example of, of knocking a water glass over at a dinner table and, you know, just complete accident. Yeah. My spouse knocks it over. But if I have that, I might look at that and say, well, great. Well, you're not going to clean that up because you yeah. never do anything. Right. I'm going to have to do it. Here we go again. <laughs> Ruin another dinner. Ruin another dinner. You Way never knock go. over the glass when you make the dinner, only yeah. when I make the dinner. Exactly. And then that sort of little thing can, can ruin a relationship. Oh, my heavens. And that's that's a natural tendency once you're kind of... Mm-hmm. in this fight-or-flight spiral. Yeah, exactly. The fearful, yep. which it all goes back to just wanting to belong. Right. But So this this whole thing could be cast. The die could be set from my parents. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that was the first relationship for most people where I learned, can I trust people that I love? Hmm. You know, were my parents, these these caregivers for me, were they there for me when I was crying? And this is, a, if you go back to the attachment stuff, yeah. this is very, very early on. But predict because I need to know that predictably my closest relationships 
are there for me, allow right. me to grow, mm-hmm. and I can go back to. Yeah, and and so I, I'm either going to learn that or I'm going to learn that, hey, the people that you're supposed to count on, you can't trust, and mm-hmm. then I'm going to just have to rely on myself. Or maybe it's inconsistent, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And so then what I'm going to learn is I'm going to push and push and push and yeah. hope that one of these times you reciprocate. And, and some then get too clingy because mm-hmm. they're afraid of you leaving them. Yep. Some get kind of withdrawing and they just dismiss you. They just... They just are always mm-hmm. disconnected from you. Yes. Yeah. So one's aggressive, one's kind of detached. Yes. Or you could do a mix of all of them. Yeah, or you could be a little bit of all. <laughs> just enjoy all of them. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to use them, I like to use all of them. Yeah. Um, that's all, what you're telling me, though. That's all natural relationship stuff. These yeah. are natural relationship issues. So if somebody's doing that dance where they can't tell if their partner's in or not, mm-hmm. they're probably – we could probably just know that somebody needs to know that they belong. Yeah, and that goes back to that open communication is that, you know, whatever partner I'm in, I am, if I'm the partner that's that's fearful that you're not committed to me, you're going to leave, or if I'm the partner that tends to withdraw and, 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 and disengage a little bit, I have to be open with my partner and, and talk about those fears and anxieties. And then my partner has to be understanding hmm. that I'm not perfect. You know, if I'm with someone that tends to withdraw, I have to be willing to say, okay, that's who they are, and they might not want to talk right now, but it's something we're working on together and individually. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing. And and yet, because it really, it seems like it's the it's kind of the energizer behind a lot of our conflict, a lot of the divorce. Yes. Yes. The, that, that feeling of loneliness um, that sets in, um, again, with couples that become really unhealthy in their patterns, whether it's communication, whether it's conflict, eventually there becomes that that sense of loneliness. Yeah, I'm with that person. Yeah. We, we have this house together. We have these kids together maybe. But I don't feel like I'm connected. I've lost that. And it feels really, really lonely. Mm. And then there's that desire to, I need to go find that somewhere else, which is where a lot of affairs come from. Um, or just, I need to get away from this because it's yeah. oppressive for me. Yeah. And I mean, I know guys that just get on these, you know, these cycling teams mm-hmm. and they just go cycle yeah. 30 miles a night yep. Yep. just because they don't have to think about it. Yeah, I can disappear into a hobby. I can disappear into video games. I mm. can disappear into work. You know, whatever it is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get somewhere else because I don't have to focus on this loneliness, this this emptiness. So if that's if that's the case, we we need to talk more about it. We need to maybe get more real about it. I mean, is there research we should read? Is there are there places does on Relate Institute are are there tools for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've actually done several blog posts about belonging and attachment and some of the latest research. You know, one of the things we're trying to do with that is is take the latest research studies that no one will read because they're boring. Right, they'll put you to sleep. Yeah, um, and translate them and do these nice little succinct blog posts. Like, hey, here here is what if you want to know what the latest research is on research. Here's what it is. And we just throw it up there for anyone that wants to read it. That's great. Um, but then we do have the assessment tools as well that, that you can take if you're worried about your relationship or you just want to know what your relationship is like. Um, we have attachment measures in Relate, and so that's part of the assessment, and so you can take it. And then in part of your report, it'll say, here's kind of what your attachment is looking like. Here's what your partner is, mm. and here's how you go together. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And you don't have to be hopeless because right. if you're at an extreme level of this, mm-hmm. there's hope. Oh, yeah. Because – You've been doing a battle for 20-something years without ever knowing what the cause was. Right. Now you're now – you can start addressing the cause. Yeah. No, knowledge is always power in relationships. So the first step is just understanding what's going on, and then it's just trying to work through it day by day and, and, and trying to move forward and having goals and being okay with setbacks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, growing together, 
with your partner. That's yeah. the biggest thing in marriage. What if it's just too – like what if you sense your partner has too big of a need? It's mm-hmm. still an attachment issue, but mm-hmm. they're just – they're an aggressive attacher that mm-hmm. needs – they always need you. It's constantly needing you. Right. It's the same problem. Mm-hmm. It's just – it's just the extreme form. Right. Then you should have done a better job dating. Yeah. <laughs> you should have picked a better. <laughs> you should have picked a better. But, I, you know, if you've got someone like that, you can you can be a facilitator then. And it, you, you still want to do all these things we're talking about and do things together. But maybe you have a, a partner that does still need a lot of peer interactions. And mm-hmm. so maybe part of my job is, hey, I'm going to set up a friend's night for you once yeah. a week. You know, because I know that's something that you need and I'm going to be I'm not going to nag about it. I'm not going to, you know, but it's going to be something we plan together. Instead of you just telling me you're disappearing and I'm not involved, I'm going to help facilitate it a little bit. And and maybe I'll even be a part of it every once in a while. Um, And so it still becomes something we're doing together. It's still a joint goal we're working on. But now we can help you. You know, if 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 you're putting everything on me, Mm -hmm. I can share the wealth. Yeah, share it a bit. Oh, man, Brian, it's good stuff. I mean, it really, and again, to just think that it's pretty normal. Yeah. And the answers just end up being communication right. and be real about what's going on. Yeah. All of us have felt lonely. Oh, yeah. Even, even again, in the best families and the best relationships, everyone has those moments where they feel kind of alone, and that's perfectly normal. That uh, was Dr. Brian Willoughby an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand uh, the need to belong and and how we actually help and facilitate that for one another. Um, and by the way, it's not even just person to person, right? It's also uh, our animals. Um, why I bring that up, it happens to be uh, celebrate your dog, love your dog day today. So of, of all the things you need to make sure, it's, it's National Hug Your Dog Day. Go give your dog some love. Give it a little sugar, uh, puppy sugar love, and, um, and, and show your dog that you really care about him. That's another way to feel like you belong because the neatest thing about an animal is whenever you come home, they are the only ones that seem glad to see you some days, if you know what I mean. How come they're the only one that runs to the door and cares Anyway, animals, uh, another great way to uh, enjoy life. Doing what we can on the show to give you the tools, the information, the insight you need to uh, feel like you belong and to, to live a healthier, happier life.